Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Sleep Talking, our interseason creator discussion show where we get into the first season of the sleep-wake cycle and just kind of discuss everything Maltopian and horror-related and writing-related and stuff like that. So last time we left off with uh, Mark discussing... um, the various conditions and uh, kind of traits of the twins, the the Stroud twins, and continuing with your a, a little background on your process during the the conception phase of the story. I wanted to um, talk about how you came up with uh, the twins' powers, and maybe talk a little bit about the horror noir approach and the investigative type of story what you enjoy about that and um then the uh like the different language that the twins use they each they both have their own uh individual language and you kind of work especially with isaiah you work the um the noir type of language into his dialogue which is awesome but uh, yeah, the uh, the whole conception phase of the the story, the twins, the the tone, all of that. Well, I mean, uh, if you go back to like the Family Man to the Shepherd of Wolves series, you can see that I I really like to explore the the distinctions, the dichotomy of you know banality and fantasy. And with the Shepherd you know, the Shepherd of Wolves, it was more like. Um, you know, Donald was very lopsided in, in terms of his development in one of those themes or the other. Obviously, he was very fantasy prone. And that was his whole goal was to create a world that mostly resembled dreams. And, you know, with the Damnation Machine and the Red Mother, that those themes kind of got refined and, and redefined and so on and so forth. So this is a, another kind of reiteration of that, I suppose, in the sense that um, I wanted Isaiah to kind of represent the banality of things, but in, in a different way, I think, than how Donald conceptualized uh, banality. Like he just sees it as repetition and so on, and, and a lack of newness, a lack of real wisdom, an assumption of, of things that, that should or shouldn't matter. Um, so it's kind of like an exploration of meaning. Uh, if, if you're in a world where nothing really matters, where does meaning come from? And on top of that, to kind of screw down the sense that he has of, of banality and things. He has a condition that is literally rooted in repetition and routine in some respects. Uh, OCD and, and Tourette's is a, a lot of that is kind of defined 
and 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 exemplified through routine and what have you and so i wanted to kind of weaponize that whereas uh donald's abilities were weaponized on the level of his kind of ability to break through reality the red dream allowed him to kind of or it was afforded him you know we haven't really gotten into whether or not he was the author of the red dream or the red dream was something that was bestowed upon him um but he kind of weaponized fantasy in a lot of ways suspending the laws of reality as he went along and and that was kind of the theme that was what he wanted to do and you know with isaiah there was a reversion an inversion of that you know he's able to kind of stabilize reality but the distinction is that he doesn't really want to he's not out there to stabilize reality for anybody's benefit it just happens to be his ability and so he's he's dealt with it as it's, it's presented itself and as he's found it to be useful um but in terms of how that works out in the story it allows me to continue my onslaught against how boring reality is i guess <laughs> It just allows me to say, yeah, you know, these are the things that I've noticed philosophically that kind of um, are challenging about a world that's, that's bereft of a real magical, you know, malleable quality. And Romy is obviously the inversion of that and, and not necessarily a compliment to Donald because yet again, whereas Donald wants these things, Romy is immersed in a world that's too fantastic. She lives in dreams. She lives in, in the sleep of others. And as a direct result, she finds that she's not that comfortable with the idea of reality completely pulled out from underneath her. And so she struggles for the solidity that Isaiah takes for granted. And her abilities, for, you know, push her into those spaces all the time. She's to survive is, is needing to, to rely and lean on those abilities. And so while she doesn't like it, it's, it's something that she has to continue to employ. Um, and in going back to a conversation, I think we had in, uh, what was it called? The Void, where I said, you know, I wanted to make characters that were dissimilar from other, like, you know, not to, not to suggest they're comic book characters, but, you know, now all the rave is comic book characters. And I don't know how many people would say, you know, I don't know why Spider-Man so bummed to have his powers. He's always talking about how his powers are such a huge burden and they're, you know, same with Superman or any of the rest of them. They're always complaining about how their powers are a burden. And the rest of us are kind of like, well, that's bullshit. Cause if you were to give me those powers, I'd be just fine. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'd make things work. Um, whereas in Isaiah and Romy's case, they really don't want them. They, it, to, to use them really presses them psychologically into a space that's very uncomfortable for them. And they have to continue to tap into those powers because they need them to survive physically, if not mentally. Mentally, I think that they're, they damage themselves when they engage them. And so there's a real resentment towards their, you know, if you want to call them gifts, because they really don't benefit much by employing them. Yes, they survive what it is that they've gotten themselves into. Um, and you visit it's not the fun. You visit that um, kind of anti-superhero sentiment in, uh, to great effect in the Damnation Machine, showing that, you know, uh, fantastical, super powerful abilities aren't exactly all, all they're cracked up to be. Most of those, most if not all of those characters were doomed or cursed in one way or another. And the, another difference is, whereas those characters they had a life before their powers. It was the Melengen that made them what they are. And as with the family man, where it, it's hard to discern, I think, if he was specifically born into his powers or if they became a part of him later in life, 
but well, clearly, think... clearly the twins were born this way. Right? Well, the family and, man. And they were able to develop their powers over time um, throughout their own respective childhoods. But um, I like that distinction as well. They don't know of any other way of being than, yeah. than the way they are. Well, the family man's a little different in the sense that he's what they would call uh, an unreliable narrator because he's he's insane. So you don't really know if he had powers or he didn't have power because he himself is he's so obsessed with dream. He, he may very well just be interpreting things and adding flourish where where it's not there. I mean, he he's totally um obsessed with this kind of dreamlike world so his is interesting in the sense that you don't know if he had powers or not or if he you know you get the sense from red mother that a lot of that stuff's legitimate but like i said well he, well, well now seen... because it's interconnected i think you know if you were to read the shepherd of wolves in isolation you could certainly come away with the idea that he was an unreliable narrator and you'll never know what the circumstances around his journeys actually entailed because Did, no didn't one of his adversaries though um mention the red dream and they were kind of comparing yeah. their own abilities within it so there is some credence i think to there's some oh, but, basis of reality in his fantasy but it, but to what degree could be could be uh widely argued but he you're getting their you're getting his opponent's words through him though good but point still... great point yeah that's true but i think you know that's that's kind of one of the the fun things about having interconnected universes, a uh, uh, universe in this one particular case, I mean, multiple universes, um, and just having a straight narrative that doesn't connect with anything. Because I think if you wanted to read Donald as an individual who was just crazy, um, you might be disappointed because when you read the other stuff, you're going to see that he's either an exopath of some kind. Or, I mean, there's some legitimate foundations that are built in the other stories that mention him to some extent, or some of the events that occurred in the story to some extent, that you can kind of easily see that he wasn't lying, that he, he probably does have some of the attributes, if not all the attributes, that he mentioned within the confines of the story. But if you were to just read that arc, I don't, I, I think you could, you know, obviously defend the position that he's just a crazy guy and he has absolutely no idea what the hell he's talking about. But it's when you read, you know, the damnation machine or any other stories that actually make a topic out of the, 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 the murders that are being conducted by exopaths and stuff like that, that you really do know, well, he's likely not lying at all. He's likely exactly what he says he is because he has run into some of the entities that have actually turned up in the other stories. I think it's uh, important. We get to the real reason everybody's tuning in and that's to hear from Kelly. How are you, Kelly? I'm great. How are you? Good evening. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Romy's powers when you first read uh, read about her and we first talked about her? Did you like that dreamy part or were you more into Isaiah's kind of super solid, you know? All about the dreamy part, honestly. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a little spacey, so you know, I'm kidding. But um, no, I, I find Romy's Remy's abilities and her powers are so interesting to me because as we're going along, you know, I'm feeling like I know her more now and I'm understanding like how, where she's coming from and how she has to operate within this, this dream state. But in, in the beginning, it's just so interesting because it's hard, it's hard to get a handle on, okay, so, 
you know, we have the side where she's she's totally in control and she's she's looking at this analytically and this is how we're doing this and then she has to slip into this other this other realm and bring out these powers that she has right and they were kind of developing as the story was going along too like each time i was like oh what am i doing this week I'm, ah, I'm floating on buildings yeah like it was just very interesting <laughs> there's like there's a whole many layers to what she has and i think we have probably more are starting to un unleash themselves as we go along but kind of watching her um and i think at this point probably she's probably feels fully developed in her abilities but i feel like as the story went on there were more things she as her, as her confidence rose too with isaiah grounding her I feel like she was tapping into more and more and more and saying, oh, I can, I can do this. I'm going to do this. I have more confidence to do this. And I, so I find that I find that as very interesting as, as angles at coming as an actor with that, too, because in the beginning, I felt very um, I felt like she was more nervous as we were going forward, trying to trying to ground herself back in reality. But then as we moved along, Isaiah's presence and that grounding kind of helped her go you know what i think i might got i might have this she might have thought she did but she mm -hmm. did and so that was a, it's a neat progression to see her go through yeah and i think a part of yeah. all of that too uh, a small element um that kind of informs that really well is that her uh up to that point she'd never really been like a field agent you know she was mm -hmm. holed up in new victoria doing her uh you know her very specific more academic oriented tasks at the yeah, behest of you know? yeah. the esoterium and now mm -hmm. she's out in the world and she's um arguably in a lot more danger than she was and this is all just kind of new to her and um i i almost wonder i haven't asked mark this yet but i almost wonder if um the audience knows the limits of their of both the twins powers or if something new will be uh introduced in the future and i'm almost hesitant to ask mark because that's a pretty cool teaser and uh we don't want to give too much away well you know the, the one thing i like about writing this particular world and and probably why i i wanted to screw this one down into i use that phrase screw this one down so much I, to situate to plant this particular story. Um, I also use the word robust too much, I was told, so I'm not using that one anymore. <laughs> anyway. um, to situate the the world after the great darkness was because of my own, I, you know, I have my conditions and whatnot, and I've had my, uh, my own kind of philosophies about how the world works and why maybe I don't like it so much, um, is that things continue to develop. They're not locked into a category here. And going back to what I said about comic books, yes, I have a huge history with comic books, which is why I bring them up. I, big fan of comic books, read the X-Men all through the 80s and 90s, um, was that there was just this definitive catalog of things that they could do, um, like a, which is, you know, obviously in play. We as organisms have a definitive catalog of things that we are capable of, and we have limits, very definitive limits. And with all the characters that I make, there doesn't seem to be that. I don't kind of write them in with full stops. Like this can develop, this can grow. This is almost like a dream where it can shift and change based on context. So as far as their powers are concerned, they're not locked in in any way, shape, or form. Yes, they have a, a very strong and um, enduring theme, but that doesn't mean they won't change, and it doesn't mean they can't change. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I, I like to parallel personality and emotion with the powers rather than biology. Now, granted, we're all wrapped up in skin and bones and, and so on and so forth, so maybe there's no reason for those distinctions, but generally speaking, 
you know, we make the distinction between the body and the mind and so on. And powers usually parallel the body. You know, when you talk about powers, you talk about biology. Um, I usually make the powers and I parallel them with the mind or the soul. And what I mean by that is emotions and personalities are quicksilver. They can change radically over time and in response to things. And so that's where the reflexivity and the, the creativity from their, their, their powers are, are drawn from, not necessarily the body, which is for the most part locked in. It's just got a definable catalog of things that it can do and limitations that uh, it suffers from. So yeah, it's always possible that their abilities could continue to grow and continue to change in reaction to either things that are happening from the outside or things that are happening, you know, that are going in, uh, that are happening from the inside of them. Awesome. Tell us uh, a bit about why you wanted to pursue the uh, noir investigative type uh, story. Um, I, I think a lot of it goes back to some of the stuff that I was reading uh, way back when I was a kid, not necessarily that I was a big fan of noir specifically, but those horror stories that kind of veered into noir, there was a lot of, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the specific genre, but it was like Lovecraftian fiction, like gumshoe Lovecraftian fiction. And, you know, Lovecraft, a lot of the stories in the 1920 or not 1920s, but the, you know, the uh, 18, late 1800s and so on and so forth. And then when the, the circle writers and whatnot came into it, they were kind of interweaving Cthulian mythos, Lovecraftian mythos, whatever, however you want to phrase that, into, you know, mob stories and, and so on. And so I kind of got to like that. And I, I like the, uh, the feel for it. And especially when I combined it with things that I was reading uh, about from things like steampunk and, and those types of things. And so it just made for a nice mismatch. And I thought it was a good match for the world that I developed, you know, a world that was trying to piece itself back together. The laws weren't adhering and obtaining in ways that we would probably expect them to today. And uh, as a direct result, there was just a lot of give and a lot of flex to the world and the social structure and the legal structure. Um, as I, as I, at least as, as far as I imagine things like, you know, the wild days of, of uh, you know, early New York during the uh, prohibition and whatnot, just these periods of time where there was just a lot of flex in the social structure where a lot of weird and unusual things could take place. And that's obviously many more times the case here in, in, in the post-darkness uh, era. So just having so much hanging out left for a very good and infertile soil for detective stories where someone can come in and back engineer scenarios and make that interesting because in every scenario is going to be different because the world is different wherever it is that you go as opposed to today where yes it's different down south yes it's different over to the west but reasonably similar um and so a detective story that took place in any of those places is going to have a lot of, of of overlapping themes because the polis is kind of stretched fairly evenly across the country um whereas at this particular world you move just a couple of blocks to your left and you're you're in a wiccan uh, or i should say heckin territory you go over here and you know you've got uh this huge crematorium where they used to burn bodies during the wasting house era so there's just a lot of weird things going on and so a detective you know, is, is going to get into the granular details of all that. So it's kind of like a twofer. I get to tell the story and I get to exhibit all of the strangeness of the world by having a reason to get granular about its examination, its analysis. 
That reminds me of our early days uh, when I joined you guys uh, six, seven years ago, and you were, you know, we, we would we were having long conversations about the world, where it was at at that point, what the great darkness was. You were kind of introducing me to everything. And the I, I remember thinking the incredible potential because after directly, especially directly after the darkness, the world was everybody woke up and the world was just, you know, um, completely, completely different. And, uh, you know, upwards of a third or half of the population is gone. Um, bodies everywhere, missing people everywhere, brand new landmarks and landscapes, uh, strange new buildings, all of this obscurum that we've talked about. And one word kind of stuck out to me is like, there's a ton of mystery here from the individual level, people just looking for family members that have disappeared all the way up to the government level of, you know, agencies trying to uh, recover you know, uh, regions and states and just trying to regain control. And yeah. it's just, uh, there, there's so much mystery. There are so many stories that could be told. It definitely does just make sense to, to go that route. And, you know, we've discussed too, I, you know, Mark has, um, you know, a hundred times the, the back burner stories that are mulling around in his head. But uh, Steve and I have our own as well. And one I've always liked is just um, a private eye, a post-noctum private eye, probably has some kind of abilities. Um, I kind of like the idea of, um, of uh, we talked about it before, an obscurum kind of investigator where something strange goes down in a weird city due to some uh, artifact left behind by the darkness. And, you know, this investigator is sent in to figure out uh, the nature of that little incident or development or whatever. But I could definitely see us getting into even more investigative stories and the like. Well, that's, that's why I was interested to, to do Romy's character the way that I did, because you know, in this kind of a world where the strange things that are going on, uh, like, you know, the new Victorian syndrome, where, where people are experiencing, like, paranormal bouts of sleep, and, and not just in terms of how the sleep affects them, but how their sleep affects the world around them. So Romy was a detective in her own right, you know, she's, she's examining the contents of people's heads in, in a place where they can't even really hide anything effectively from her. Um, and yeah, there's perils in there, but she's, her powers are equipped to allow her to contend with those. And so, you know, I, I wanted to take that, that resolving lens and just stick it all over the place, you know, even in, in people's heads and their dreams and whatnot. And, and that's why I, I really enjoyed Romy's character, because while Isaiah is this kind of detective in the banalist sense, you know, I, he gets paid to go do some, well, I shouldn't say in the banalist sense, he works for like a, you know, a clandestine organization, but he's doing things that detectives do up to, well, I don't think detectives are generally killing people, but Isaiah has obviously killed some people, but he does detecting work. That's what he does. He tries to figure things out. And that's exactly what she does. Um, she just does it in a different way. And in a world where you, you're not looking at an objective thing, really. In, in Isaiah's case, you know, the banal, the, the, the mundane world um, defines itself 
in these really conspicuous and enduring ways. You know, if there's blood or DNA or something, that immediately means you can back engineer it to the source or whatever. There's there's a logical connection of a chain of contingency binding one thing to another. Romy's got a completely different job. She's in a dream. There's there's no DNA. There's there's nothing like that. She has to learn to play a different game, different kind of head game altogether if she wants to figure things out. She has to know deep human psychology. She has to understand dream symbols. She has to understand how people sleep, you know, the levels of sleep. Um, and that's just, you know, the real stuff. And then we get into the fictional stuff, you know, like the wakeless and the lands of Nod. And she knows all that stuff. And she's a detective on the inside, an inner space uh, detective. So by pairing them, it was kind of like, yet again, it was a twofer. I got to examine all the different layers of, of the world as much as I could. One love thing I, I love that you did with Romy too is that you know she she goes she goes into a sleep read and it can be chaotic and confusing and she's like I don't know what is going on but she's absorbing all this information but I love that she doesn't come out of it and go okay I got it it's blah 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 and there's this and this and this she'll come out many times and just be like I I just leave me alone I don't I need to think <laughs> this through I need to sort this out and you know and Isaiah said a couple of times I know Romy's in her own head I'm gonna leave her there you know let her figure this out and it, but it's a good touch too right because it could be like oh she has these she's so great she goes in and pops out and says okay we got ABC is what we need to do and that just I don't know that wouldn't have felt Right. authentic to me you know um but yeah i love the fact that she comes out it might take a little while I'll be like i need to chew on this and have a cigarette you know so it's like yeah <laughs> you know i think that's a great touch with her it's perfect for that character and i, and I think that's that kind of goes to the to the core of what she does because like you said it, it would be unkind it, it wouldn't seem it, I don't know. I think it almost the words I'm looking for is like hackneyed in the sense like, you know, you always have these psychic characters that are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, drop some wisdom on you because I just clawed it out of the ether or whatever. But that's not how she works. She's got to do detective work. She's got to go in there. She has to figure out what's going on. She's collate facts and it takes time. It's just not like she just dips into the well of knowledge and then right. comes out, you know, with all the answers. It's like she's got to put them together just like everyone else. It's just mm -hmm. she's got access to a whole new playing field. And and I, I think that's like a really good way of describing it, because like you said, it, the psychic character, I think, is what you're describing with the the alternative is like, oh, I just kind of get into people's heads and I just take what I want and, and I get to know what I need to know. And that's just right. not how it's happening. That's yeah, that would almost be a, almost a deus ex machina if she could just pull out whatever was needed to suit the story at the yeah. drop of a hat kind of wouldn't make much sense. Your uh, your mention of the esoterium brings us to uh, a couple of questions. Um, we're currently taking questions over on Discord, our Discord and uh, our Patreon. So check the, uh, the links in the description if you wanna ask us anything. And uh, our patron, um, Sword Dog, and kind of a, a, a adjacent question from Adam, uh, Adam Sogard, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but they were wondering about the organizations, the factions, which uh, we love getting into when we're coming up with stories. We love talking about um, how these different factions kind of influence things behind the scenes. 
And uh, Sword Dog says, um, so speaking specifically about season one, uh, so we've seen the government organization that the twins work for and that it has, you know, uh, several different branches. Are there any other branches that we may have seen but not realized at the time? And Adam adds on, um, how influential is the esoterium? And is its relation and how is it related to the other malfactions from other stories, that kind of thing? Um, and he asks about what about the, uh, the consortium of doors? And there's just I wonder to a large degree so far, the audience seems to love it, but um, it's more the editor in me that uh, keeps pushing my clients for clarity. Like, what are you trying to say here? Uh, you know, it took you 10 pages to say this when all you needed was two. Um, what is the precise message you're trying to get through here? And so it's, ta it's taken me a long time to acclimate to Mark's specific level of clarity. And I can understand why his is as it is. Um, it's a very subjective thing to get into. It all depends on the author um, and how they like to go about it. But at the same time, to some degree, um, it has to make sense to the audience. And I love the fact even though part of me is still, I just need to know, I want clarity. I love the fact that there are all of these factions and authorities and clandestine little agencies out there, some of which have only had a single mention in a single mythos piece from two years ago, and it hasn't been mentioned since, and I wanna know more, and there isn't any more. And I love that about Maltopia, but, I'll shut up now. What do you have to say about the esoterium, how it works in sleep wake? What about the other, any other factions or anything that did appear that were kind of vague? Any new factions they can look forward to in season two? Uh, well, definitely. Um, there are a lot of factions. There's a lot of factions as, as you all probably know, I, I write a lot and I have a lot of stuff that I'm sitting on and there are just, a I probably won't ever get to use them all, which is unfortunate because I have a lot of them and some of them are pretty interesting, I think. Um, but essentially what the esoterium is, is a necessary, um, a brokering of, of power and whatnot after the fall of the United States government or the world governments as they, as they once were in terms of uh, stabilizing factors. And then the great darkness occurred all of these other cabals, all of the, you know, in the real world right now, we all have our suspicions about conspiracies and cabals and secret organizations and so on and so forth. Well, in, in this particular world, these, those organizations were real. Um, whether or not they are now, I don't, I don't know how to make any position on that, but um, in this world, they kind of took, they kind of came into that and they kind of replaced the vacuum that occurred after the fall of the governments. And so they kind of went in and tried to prop things back up. Um, as much as they could, given the specific nature of whatever it is that they did prior to the great darkness, the secret wisdom that they might have had or accrued or the secret influences or whatever it is they might have had access to, they used to the ends of trying to set back up 
some kind of government, either a world government or a national government or even a local government, depending on where these organizations were. And they kind of knit themselves together and became this kind of under government. And I don't want to get into too much detail as to how they operate, but it's, I can say that they don't all get along with each other. It's, it's, it's a kind of um, begrudging truce that they have. And they all have their, their expertise in various matters, and they're all trying to reassemble the world in a way that benefits themselves, which obviously creates tension between them uh, themselves with regards to that, and that, and that tapestry that I talked about that they sold themselves into. Um, so there's a lot of give and take, push and pull, and, and so on and so forth. And not all of them are aware of what the other ones are doing. And so you might see an organization in one story doing something that might run contrary to a spoken agenda that'll show up in another because they are very good at keeping secrets and they're very good at doing things below board. Um, but to the extent that they've fashioned some semblance of a government or, or allowed it to function in, in some kind of capacity after the darkness by putting people in power and, and reconstructing organizations, and, um, you know, uh, coming up with different agendas for to address different problems that occurred after the darkness, they're just all over the place. Um, there are some, obviously, there's some major cabals and, and whatnot that are at the fore inside the esoterium. And, hint, hint, there is another organization out there that runs counter to the esoterium. I won't get into them, but they're out there. And you will be running into them soon. But there's, there's another presence. Um, as far as organizations that you may have seen but not known about in terms of, you know, things that the characters have kind of run into here and there, yes. Yes, there's there's quite a few. Um, just as recent as the um, apostates, that the twelve apostates that had gathered together to watch the ascension of the Night Christ. Um, the character that Kelly voices, as a matter of fact, is part of a completely different organization um, that actually showed up. I think I think there's a story. Somebody I don't know if it's Stephen who wrote it, but I think that I give the name it doesn't mean anything without context. They're called the um, Giros, she's a she's a member of the organization called the Giros, and I think Stephen wrote a story about one of them at some point. The, Maybe the mobster. There was a mobster. I can't remember. Oh yeah, the yeah okay yeah uh, yeah you're right yeah um, the the guy who the 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 thing that was in the the iron lung or the yeah, yeah the Giros yeah. Yeah, they, they all have they all have backstories. And and the reason I, I like them to have backstories is I'm so critical of, of other stories line, storylines when I when I watch them, I'm like, I bet you they used to be that character and that has no backstory and they just made that person out. When I do that, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta, I don't want to be that guy. I gotta make sure there's a backstory for I all think, these characters. I think yeah. that's sometimes where not frustration, but where I want to be able to do a data spill because I feel like people are skeptical, like mm, there's no fucking background to that. But there's like Sathanas, like we drop the name Sathanas a lot, but there's a whole mythology behind Sathanas and his relationship with the other unbegotten. And there's a whole story about his position and what he what it did. I should just say it because it's not really a he or a she. Um, but I'd love to drop that, but then it kind of ruins everything. So it's like Shigorn, the Dream Eater, the uh, all of those thing the, the unbegotten the bornless there's a huge mythology there we just have to find the right avenue to express that and that could be a lot of the patreon content is like when we get into the corpus diablos which is written by 
the dark scholars who are actually in the know, who, who have some inkling of understanding of what the origins of these things are, or at least they think they do. The, the other interesting thing about the mythology, which we uh, like to do, is not give you necessarily one interpretation, but multiple interpretations, in that academics look at these things differently, the unbegotten, the bornless, the, the, the various uh, malfactions. There's different interpretations of what they are. Um, I think I wrote an article on uh, the Bayul um, that was supposed to reflect like an academic article by a dark scholar, you know, referencing all these different studies of the Bayul. And, you know, they come up with different perspectives as to what the origins of the Bayul are and what, 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 you know, what their abilities are, what their biology is. And I think a lot of that actually comes from uh, the influence of Lovecraft. If you look at Lovecraft's uh, stuff, August Derleth came, came around and turned the gods into almost these elementals, which was just, just a lot of people hated it because they, he changed a bit about Lovecraft's mythology, but I thought it was really cool because that's how mythologies work. They're, they, they're subject to interpretation. New generations come along and they interpret it differently. And at the end of the day, you really don't know what's what. And I really liked that about the Cthulhu mythos, that there, there were all these different interpretations of the, the great old ones and the outer gods and everything. And uh, I think that's something we've really embraced in this is to give you multiple views so you don't really, it, it's, it's supposed to reflect more of a, a realistic perspective of mythology that you really have a good beat on what's real, what's, what's not, what's, you know, different interpretations. Well, that's, that's, that's a lot of the challenge too, I think, as a writer, uh, when we approach this kind of stuff, there's a temptation to do something uh, that... I don't know how often it's done. I mean, I, I've, 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 I've seen something like this in a, in a few places, but it, it runs more along the gamut of science fiction, which is when you attempt to explain something. Horror, by its, by its very nature, is about the unknown. And so sometimes, and I think a lot of people would share this opinion, that it spoils things to know what the horror is. And I sometimes think differently about that. You know, when you get into what I, you know, I fictionalized all these sciences and got into the guts of them in terms of trying to make as much sense out of them as I can so that you can follow them down really far before you hit the fiction. So it's believable up to that point where it hits the wall. And, um, and so sometimes the stories are interesting because they are explained. I, I like to try to take things that would normally not be very easy to explain and then try to put a science to them. Granted, it's not a real science, but to not, you know, not just to throw fake words either, but to make some semblance of an explanatory framework for those things to occur in that has been, you know, that's been created by some existing faction of the academics or, or whatever. So that that's interesting too. I want that to be just as interesting as the mystery itself, that there's this richness to, um, or maybe I should say a, a robustness. Though I <laughs> that's what I like about, we we've talked about like various other types of stories we'd like to get into and other types of um, genres we'd kind of like to melt with and dabble in. And reading and um, mostly discussing some of Mark's most um, zoomed out approaches regarding the literary universe and the major, kind of like the major just handful of tentpole kind of theories that um, either are applied or some within the universe believe them to be applied, but like the major zoomed out stuff, 
the more Mark talked about it and how he designed it and uh, why these theories are structured the way they are, I'm like, Mark, this is really starting to sound like dark sci-fi. And uh, that's definitely um, a major kind of subgenre I could see us getting into in, in future you know, future podcasts um, are some of our major uh, future narratives, major, the, the big narratives, you know, spanning entire seasons and uh, the stuff we'd like to uh, get published one day. I could see us, it, it, it's almost to the point, especially after Damnation Machine with the Melengen and everything, it, it's almost like a natural progression of uh, the universe to explore the more science fiction based stuff. I'd love to see it. I know that. Well, I, I think it's just interesting to to take, first of all, it's interesting to take a known quality, a quantity and, and turn it upside down and into the point where it's not known. Like for instance, a lot of people have beefs with um, uh, Stanley Kubrick, is that his name? For, uh, uh, Kubrick. Direct, Kubrick. Yeah, Kubrick. Yeah. yeah. Why can't I think, I can never think of names. And when I think I know a name, I begin to question the validity of my understanding of it. It's probably not his name. I only talk about the guy all the time. You think I know his name, right? But it's like you know the, the the big issue I think between his interpretation and Stephen King's vision was that Stephen King's vision was was pretty definitive. I I think for The yeah, Shining, it was, yeah, it was a ghost story, and it granted ghosts in, in and of themselves don't lend themselves to a lot of intelligibility in terms of how they come about or anything like that. So I mean, yeah, it was a ghost story. It was about the the unknown and whatnot. But it, inside the genre, the ghosts are kind of yeah, we we we've had a lot of ghosts. But the movie kind of made everything muddy. It just kind of confused the boundaries of things. It was not a lot of specificity. I mean, I, when I first watched it, I had no idea what was happening. I didn't know if he was crazy for most of the movie and then she got crazy or if there was really some spooky stuff going on. And so it's almost like he made something that, though it wasn't supposed to be a defined thing because it happened in a genre that is defined by its non-definedness, that's a word, you know, because it's a ghost story or whatever. He, he kind of made it even more vague and more mysterious and maybe the product of madness more than magic and ghostry and all that kind of stuff. And um, I love that. That was That's why I'm a big and staunch to, uh, supporter of the movie over the, the story, which was a fine story. It was run of the mill, I think. Um, and then you have stories that you really have no idea what the hell is going on. It would be interesting to, to get like, you know, a cult academic on the topic. Like, you know, I know Kelly loves uh, the movie, uh, The Blair Witch Project. And, you know, what would an occult physicist come in and do there? Like, what would he think of all that? What would be his write-up, you know? And I just think, because that movie is, you know, there's no attempt at explanation. There's a witch in the woods, maybe. It's and yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, what, what what's going on? And so I always think it might be, I don't always think it, but I think it's sometimes interesting and entertaining to try and understand the, the the noetic that which isn't supposed to be understood and does that it, it, does that sap the 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 juice away from the story or does that add something like um you know when i talk about uh the, the pain eaters or something you know the the way that they operate on a victim is by using their their venoms or the the the, the, the skins that they produce which are antithetical to the migration of the soul so they can torture people forever by wrapping them in this layer of skin that they produce um, because the soul is never allowed to leave the body and so it's like a battery for them and then to get into the machines and how they work and 
you know, how they use the migration of the soul. That's, you know, the soul's trying to move and, and it's constantly trying to move. So if, if you were to stop the soul from moving, it would posit an energy they, against they the use container. A, I think you're confusing the skin. The, the screen meter is using an elixir that, that causes the, that, that oh, that's prohi- right. prohi- prohibits right. the soul from leaving. The skin yes. weavers have a certain skin type of skin yeah. they weave that can cause the, the, to keep the soul within. That's right. See, this is what I mean. He knows more about the freaking world than I do. And I made it. I don't, I made that huge mistake. I, I feel stupid. I was like, I made that. And I don't even, yeah, he's right. You got it. The, the flesh eaters use the skin to stop the migration of the soul. And then there's a technology. Um, we need uses... a story about those two working together. That would be yeah, awesome. Right? <laughs> that would be deeply disturbing. I love it. Well, that's, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I I'm going to, preempt part of a question that i know uh was was asked i don't think it's i don't think i'm a- answering the whole question but it's part of it like would i want to live in my own world and the answer is a resounding no <laughs> i want to live in in yeah in that's from uh david gregory on patreon and uh no, i think that Hellenius asked a mm-hmm. similar question as well i i would not i would no. not want to live in there because <laughs> I've written a lot of the creatures are in there and I've taken a lot of liberties and, and whatnot with how horrible they can be. What character do you think would best represent you from David on Patreon? I, I think I'd just be one of the nameless like, would your, piled up on the road. I right? mean, I, I wouldn't last very long. I it's like, think. would your answer be different if you could do what uh, Donald does, what Donald can do? Well, I think my only advantage would be if the world was made precisely the way that I made it, I would know maybe perhaps how to go somewhere and, and, and pick up some level of like supernatural aptitude, maybe. Um, but outside of that, I would want no, I mean, just the, the stream eaters themselves. Uh, I would not, that's horrible. I mean, that the world is horrible. It's an absolute mess. I would not want to live in it. It's great to visit. I mean, it's the whole nature of horror. You know, we like to be scared, but we don't, it's fun to watch Jason, you know, cut people's heads off, but we don't want that head to be ours. And I, I'm in that camp. I'm like, no, no. What about you, Kelly? What, uh, what character represents you best? And would you want to uh, be dropped in the middle of Maltopia? <laughs> my, my answer is also no. But um, I was giggling to myself. So I was like, you know, I, this is probably the worst answer on the planet. But I'm like, maybe I'm a lot like Vive, actually. And then I was like, God, but she's such an asshole. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'm not. But um, yeah, I, Gen- honestly. Genevieve I, from the Red Mother? Yeah, from the Red Mother. Yeah, exactly. But honestly, I, th- I think the truth be told, it's kind of the boring answer is I really see my, so much myself in Romy. I really do. And that's why nice. I love this character so much. Yeah. But I could, I could be a gun maiden. I wouldn't mind it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always, uh, I always imagine myself as like well, a couple of places. I think I might be able to like run off to. But for the most part, it's like, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we don't get political. But I'm just saying, like, if if things were to just fall apart, let's just say, you know, there's there's a there's a narrative out there right now talking about the collapse of the United States and other nations and whatnot. And I've always said, you know, if that were to happen, I'm just, I'd just jump off a cliff or something. I got nothing to offer. I'm, I'm just a mouth to feed or something. I'm not going to do anybody. What do you want to tell you a story or something about <laughs> physics? You know, you want to know your science lesson? I don't know. I don't know what good I am at that point. I'm just. I was I'm thinking about a, that, like, you know, walking dead type of right. situation. <laughs> and it's like, 
you have to earn your place in whatever community you know i uh i know electricians i know uh you know plumbers <laughs> i know a lot of construction guys um just a lot of people with some very uh some some very specific skill sets and it's like i can edit our compound leaders new manifesto i what can i do i I can't do anything. Yeah, so you, you, if you I want no propaganda, I can help out. Uh, other than that, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I mean, and then you have to, like, there'll be people out there who will be, you know, capable of defending you, but then you have to participate in some meaningful way. Right. Like, what do I give? I don't know. You guys yeah. like, I mean, I'm a bigger guy, but I'm also like 50. I don't know how long I last pushing and pulling stuff. So I don't know. Maybe you like the dogs. I don't know. I can. <laughs> I used to have a really big dog. I can handle big dog. You're you're the old muscle. You'll be the. You'll just. I'm walk not even good at that. I mean, I'm like I'm a type. I'm a type two diabetic with mental disorders. I mean, I don't. I don't. There's not a. There's a lot of not. A, there's there's just not a lot of need for me. I just don't think. <laughs> we just need to all get really good at growing vegetables in. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I can, I can grow it out of a rock. No problem. You got me. So that's what you do. You stay on the farm and you just make, you, you grow basil. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> food. I, I don't know. Yeah, what do you I'm, do? I'm screwed too. Yeah. So. He doesn't have a name. We just call him by what he does. We call him basil. <laughs> call Very basil. good at making basil. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it, in, in, uh, you know, Maltopia, it's, it's even worse because you know, in the real world, there's, I mean, granted, there's a lot of ideas as to what happens after you die and so on and so forth, but we don't have any real definitive data yet. But in, in, in Maltopia, we know a couple of places you could end up and they're not nice places. And I, I would rather just die and bypass all that, but it's not, that's not even the case. You're going to die and then die again, and then maybe again, and then get recycled or digested or, I don't want to, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm content writing as opposed to living inside of what about you, Steve? Any characters resonate with you in Maltopia? I mean, I like a lot of the characters, but I don't I don't think I'm I'm liking even because they're all spectacular in some way. But uh no, nah, I mean, I'm just pretty much I like Keith a lot. I kind of Yeah. You know, he's the uh I forget his title. What was his the, uh, he's the conductor. He's the, the conductor. Conductor. conductor, yeah. From yeah. the damnation machine, yeah. But uh, no, I mean, I can tell you about neurobiology and stuff, but that's barely needed in post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> there's anyone I, I might resemble. I'm just looking for the most like pathetic character that I've written, like not pathetic, but you know, <laughs> like he just doesn't really like Eric. He's the dead knot, but Eric himself is kind of useless. He's not particularly bright. He's not, he's not anything really. He's just a, He's just a dude that was brought back from the dead and um, has no useful skills. And it, ironically, the one thing he does the best is die. And, you know, that's, that's, that's it. I, I'm, I'm thinking I could excel at dying over and over <laughs> again, I guess. That would be like my one. Yeah, but you guys haven't seen death teasing me do it. I can, really, <laughs> I can really kick up some grave dirt and I'm good at that. But other than that, yeah. I mean, one thing... One thing I did want to highlight this episode was, um, Steve, we had a few, they were private messages uh, recently, but over the years, you've had some wonderful uh, 
comments and compliments regarding sound design. Um, what, uh, what were your thoughts on how you approached the sleep-wake cycle? Anything new well, and different you wanted to try? Uh, I wanted to try more, uh, especially towards the end, more ambient tracks. For instance, I, I can't take that much credit because, it, I, like I said, I get the music from prepaid sites that you know allow for licenses to be bought and whatever but i still choose it to try to fit with the atmosphere and whatnot and tailor it to that um but a lot of I, I dark uh, ambiance because of uh, sleep wake cycle is more horror oriented so there's a lot of more or they're they're they have abilities but they're not they're not like the 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 mouse sapiens or anything like that um so that was the approach i took um with sleep wake cycle i mean the, the only one that i i crafted the music and I, again i I'm, I'm not a musician i just use a program that takes pre pre-existing sounds and puts them together and make music was the shepherd of wolves that was all stuff i put together um but again the different soundtrack different soundtracks for different uh i used a lot of industrial stuff for um the the uh, the damnation machine because it, it, you know it's about this machine that it creates these these people and whatnot so I wanted a more industrial sound to that uh, heavily influenced by Nine Inch Nails uh, I listened to Nine Inch Nails when I was starting like at ten years old um, probably too young to be listening to, <laughs> to, to, to the downward spiral and broken and pretty hate machine and stuff but um, so I, I like a lot of that stuff and. Uh, you know that that was kind of my approach it, it was more industrial for damnation machine tried to get more horror traditional horror with sleep wake cycle with a lot of ambiance it's actually what the both of us did when we we first started the sleep wake cycle or not sleep wake cycle the shepherd of wolves series is we we kind of had this idea to do it on uh this this kind of open story on facebook and when we were starting out we were like well what do we what do we do how do we go about this and, you know, I wrote the stories and we, you know, we read them and then we were like, well, you know, this needs some art. And he's like, yeah, it would be great if we had some music. And I have a background with art, traditional art, but I hadn't probably put pen to paper in maybe 10 years. I hadn't drawn anything. And he was always interested in developing, you know, some talent with the music end of things, but he hadn't done anything at all. So there was this huge frontier subjective it was you know obviously not a frontier to everyone but for us it was this new frontier we were kind of like yeah maybe we can break into these areas and see what we can do and i started just for money's sake you know it was just cheaper for me to do the the art myself than to contract someone and the same thing went for music so he started to develop uh his his talent for music and i i got into digital art so it was you know from the beginning it was very much a uh, uh an experiment with what new things we could learn to do because all and, we really had in the beginning was, you know, I can write, but that's yeah, it. <laughs> in, in those early days, um, when we were, I had just come on board and we were kind of experimenting with our YouTube channel. And we even had, uh, we, we had just gotten into the podcast um, and we were still even kind of, posting a little written material on the Facebook page and stuff like that. And back then when we were still kind of finding our footing and seeing what kind of 
what kind of work we could get done in the time we had. There's Max. Mark's right. uh, Mark's son has just come onto the. My my son likes to in. Hi Max. Hey Max. And Max had his Max had his first uh, voice role, didn't he? Yes. Well, he can't hear you because I got the thing, but. Right. Oh, you can hear. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had his very first. Did you remember your your very first role in Miltopia? Who were you? Do you remember? That's right. You were that little boy. He was he was little awesome. Isaiah. <laughs> you hear that? Says you're awesome. What do you say? You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I kind of that would be neat. I was like, you know, we were going through yeah. that. I'm like, man, wouldn't that be cool to be in an actual? Little, little kid do that and then i i i didn't know if he'd be able to pull it Whoop, there goes my earpiece didn't know if he'd be able to pull it up but you pulled it off very well didn't you and now you're gonna you're gonna vamoose so i can finish my show come on mommy come on mommy. mommy i'll be right back that's the uh the, the token max uh interruption <laughs> but so back in those early days, we were just kind of finding our footing. And back then, I recall um, Steve between the Shepherd of Wolves um, audio, you were having a lot of fun doing really specific stuff. The only problem was it was super time consuming, which is why mm. you've since migrated to the more packaged stuff and making decisions based on um based on that level of sound design but back then and not just with the sound but with the video editing the the very early videos it. of uh, the shepherd of wolves on youtube were uh really well done and i look forward to a time when we have more time all three of us to dedicate to uh maltopia and i like to think you know we we've had plans for a while to uh, get the YouTube channel up and running again. And obviously we're looking into publication for all our uh, long form narratives. And um, I kind of hope for a time when, you know, we can even get more equipment for you and you can just kind of do that just like learn more play around as much as you want and not because i know the the packaging the package stuff is really convenient and really necessary but you just seem to enjoy it so much it'd be nice to uh one day see you kind of do what you want you know yeah i mean i'd like to learn more about the programs and, and things of that nature, be able to make my own sound effects. But uh, like, I, like I said, the other reason I use the, the, the uh, pre-packaged music though, is because it's professional, you know, professional level music. These guys are way more talented than I am. <laughs> um, but, you know, so that, that's the benefit of that as well. And, you know, I can't, I, I can create a song in my head. I can hear it, but I, I can't, I don't know how exactly to using pre-existing sounds, how to sometimes implement it. So sometimes it's just easier to go on these, these websites that allow you, you know, to non-royalty uh, soundtracks where I can find something that fits the mood and mm -hmm. use it. Awesome. Well, that brings us to uh, about the one hour mark. We covered uh, some of the questions from our patrons and uh, discord. 
And uh, next time we'll pick up with additional questions and talk a bit more about the other Maltopian narratives and uh, the literary world as a whole and get into... Um, I'd like to get into like, you know, our, our respective influences coming into horror. I think that would be yeah. fun. That way, you know, we're not always talking about uh, the specifics of the sleep-wake cycle, just get a kind of background for everybody, see what we all like, how we came here. Mm -hmm. That'd be kind of fun. Plus, I like talking about movies, as anybody knows, all the horror movies. So. Oh, one more uh, bonus question. This is uh, specific to, to sleep-wake. Uh, Mead over on Patreon wanted to know, uh, so I know that tech advanced differently after the darkness, but I thought it odd that blimps had made a comeback, even though airplanes were obviously a, a thing in the years leading up to the darkness. So my question is, why uh, did blimps surpass airplanes? Also, you do have a helicopter show up in, the, uh, in one of the Team 27 uh, episodes. So is it that those types of transport planes and helicopters are only for like the rich and powerful? And just talk to us about the blimps and the, the whole air travel post well, first, well, first it was purely for aesthetic purposes. I'm like, I just like the idea of these great big black floating blimps just ominously, you know, bouncing around the skies. But then as I started looking at it, the same kind of question dawned on me. I'm like, well, is there really any advantage? just to having a blimp as opposed to just flying an airplane so as i i started to kind of formulate the the, the set pieces for the story for the the series i did i did some looking into it and it seems that blimps are just cheaper they run they can go farther with much less fuel and um the the lack of infrastructure in the world right now makes it very difficult for a plane to to take off and land it requires a landing strip and all kinds of different things uh um there's a word for the process of determining if there's somebody else in the sky with you and all that what's that there's a, there's a radar or something radar air, air uh, traffic air traffic yeah. control there's, there's an entire system built into that uh process and blimps it's kind of like they can land anywhere if you have an open field you can just drop them right down um so in the context of the world as it stands right now it's just easier for blimps to make their way around it's not by any means as, as fast although they, they move much faster than i was aware of when i looked into it um, but it's just a cheaper, more effective way to get from one place to the next, just because there's not a lot of infrastructure. A lot of the planes have been destroyed. But in, in, in response to your other question, which was, uh, you know, with helicopters and airplanes still there, they are. And yes, they are more or less the property of the rich and famous, not famous. Fame is actually, um, this is something nobody knows. I haven't gotten into this. There's a story coming out that kind of addresses this. The, there's, the fame is illegal in, in some respects. So... They're not famous. Not that it, not, a, not that the blimp itself has much to worry about. They don't have a mind to, to appreciate their fame. But anyway, I was I'm going off on a tangent. But yes, there the the, the old technology is there. It's it is the property of um, more powerful uh, organizations that have access to um, runways and things like that. But for just the kind of you know the rank and file, um, I think it's, it's the blimp or the train. To me, there's a practical quality there as well in that, you know, if you wake up tomorrow and a third to half of the world's population uh, is disappeared, there's clearly far less demand. And yeah. given from what we've seen historically in our own world about the, I guess, fragile nature of the, the air industry, it makes a lot of sense that it would pretty much you know, 
um, there's a major pun here, but I'm not going to say it. It makes sense that the air industry would um, kind of fold and that, you know, the, the rich and powerful would have, you know, their private jets or helicopters or stuff, but like, like the, the run of the mill ubiquitous commercial air that, you know, uh, connects the world. It makes a lot of sense that the majority of that simply from shock, if nothing else, um, the shock of what the world has to deal with in this new world everyone has to live in, it would make that uh, pretty untenable to say nothing of profitable. Um, yeah, and plus there's just a lot of, uh, you know, city lines that haven't been formally reclaimed. And there's a lot of outlying cities that just don't want your blimp there. They don't want your plane there. So if you try to go there, land there, you're playing your helicopter, your blimp or whatever, you might, you might find yourself in some hot water. And so, um, it, travel is, is, is risky. I mean, the, the blimps go to those places that have been more or less gentled, you know, in terms of their outlaw status, you know, there are people there that they're all of one mind or they've been kind of reconsolidated under the government uh, that's now forming and they're safe to travel. But there's a lot of places, you know, you, you don't want to end up in. And uh, if you were going to go there, blimps probably the way to go because you just get dropped off in a field somewhere and off they go. Um, and a final last bonus question from uh, Hellenius. Uh, I thought this was interesting and that may be something that um, you have in mind for season two or later seasons. Uh, where is it? Will we be seeing any prequels for Isaiah and Rosemary's life when they were apart? I think she may be, I'm not sure if she's asking about completely separate stories or if she means little vignettes in season two, but any thoughts there on their background? Because we know Romy has that academic background, very sheltered, but very sheltered in a very dangerous city in New Vic. Yeah. And um, Isaiah has, I don't know, I picture him like being born with the revolvers in his hand and like a gumshoe fedora on his head. I, I've kind of always envisioned him as this, you know, this well, uh, hard, hard cop who's just kind of looking for trouble. No, I, I, I do think you're going to see a little bit. Yes. I don't know as if we would do an entire series based on, um, you know, going back into their past, but I definitely see, uh, especially for Romy, because I think, you know, like you said, you you kind of imagine she seems like she's stuck in one place, but she's actually in a much more diverse environment than even Isaiah is, who's got free reign. He can go anywhere he wants. But but Romy is being sent to places. I think in the very first um, episode that you know, that she was in, because I, I think I did one episode of Peace to introduce them. Yeah. She, she talks about how she had gone to a madhouse and she was kind of commissioned to investigate the internals of some convicted killer's head That's or something right. like that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is very, very much like if you think of the movie um, The Cell, I think it's called, yeah. with Jennifer Lopez, uh, which is really a, a great movie. I, I just watched that not too long ago. I love, I love, love, love that movie. And, you know, it's very similar to what she goes through, really. Uh, the environments that she's tasked to to investigate are far more diverse, far more hectic and strange and unusual than, than anything Isaiah's been up against. Um, and so 
Whereas I think you can kind of intuit Isaiah's backstory like you did. You know, I kind of imagine him as an old gumshoe just kind of doing what he needs to do. And you, you add a little bit of flavoring in terms of sometimes he takes some liberties with these guys. And, and certainly there's a weirdness to the exopaths that can't, can't be diminished either. But Romy's in this royal of dream all the time. And she's in the middle of one of the most insidious cities in Maltopia, which is really saying something. And so I think where we can kind of intuit Isaiah's past to a certain extent, I think it's more difficult to imagine uh, where Romy's been. So I think for the purposes of getting a really good beat on her uh, as much as can be had because of the nature of what she does and who she is, I think it would be interesting to some point, and I intend to, I've got a fairly large, I don't like calling expository pieces, but I just like to get into what she was doing. Cause I think that's interesting. I um, see, I could see some very like uh, a mini series or um, a limited series, just Kelly's voice from Romy's perspective. Maybe she's, um, I don't think we specifically give the twins age uh, in season one, I kind of put them around in their thirties or something, but in this, uh, this limited series, I see like Romy in her twenties or something. No, no thoughts whatsoever really of Isaiah or what's what he's up to. She's got her own life, her own thing going on. And it's not only a great opportunity to, um, get into Romy's character, but to, more fully illustrate what it is about Nuvik that makes it so unique to the world. What do you think, Kelly? I say yes, please. <laughs> no, because <laughs> no, that's the whole, I, I was, one of these days I was going to ping you guys and be like, so how far back are we going to dig into this? Because I'm, I'm dying to know, right? When they're after the time they're separated to where we started, like there's so much about her and I'm, you know, just like mm -hmm. the fans, like I'm into it too. I'm like, I need to know, like, what's, what's going on here? Like what's brought her here? What has she seen? What has she done? So she's fascinating to me. It's a great character. Well, yeah, it's like, we, you know, the, the, when we first, I, when was the first time that uh, there was, there was one bit you did that I thought was really, it, it was really defining of her. I thought it was the first time you started. Um, it was the first like intense moment she had, I think and the way you did it was really interesting because you know, like I'm always talking about her having this, I should just clarify like this, writing a character is different than when you hear the character you've written acted. Like they're completely two different layers. So it's like I had written the scene where um, the, I think it was one of the first situations she had gotten into where she might've gotten hurt. It was when she was traveling from Nighthead to she needed to go look up a book or something. And she went through this one city can't the remember. car that yes she's yeah. driving or something mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there was this part where she was nervous and i think some some guy got in the car with her something like mm -hmm. that and i had written it in such a way that i thought it was too i i, I it was felt like she'd be too scared and i didn't want her to be too scared i didn't want her to come off like this is something she'd never experienced before i wanted it to be more like okay yeah this is I, yeah it's spooky but I think I could handle this and I remember writing it and how I wanted it to come out and you read it like differently but it was like 10 times better than I, what I was shooting for because you had you had kind of gotten her 
like she's scared, but she's like, oh yeah, well, and she's like, I, I got this. And it was just the tone you used. And I just wanted to point that out because it, it's always different um, from the writing aspect to the reading aspect. And, you know, with me, it's different because I get to write and I read Isaiah, but with, with Kelly, she's reading what I've written and it just becomes a whole new thing. It's not like what I've written anymore. It's a whole new thing. It's got its own life, its own long, uh, its own uh, vitality to it. And I think that's the one thing that's jumped out at me the most is the way that she's, she can be frightened, but she, it never really takes her aback. It's like, yeah, I've done, I've done this stuff. It's almost like she's totally consistent with it. Yeah. Like she's used to, uh, maybe not. It's like, she's familiar with fear and it's like, she's used to its presence. Yeah. That's not a very good way to put it actually. No, that, that, that one scene was, was, uh, was a fun scene for me because I, I, you know, Kelly been with us since uh, the Red Mother. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about how Vive is, is distinct from, uh, from Romy. And for me, as someone who, you know, I, I voice a lot of the characters and in, and in my own head, you know, I'm always thinking, I need another voice actor because I hate my voice. and I don't know how, if anyone's really distinguishing me from the other characters I'm doing in the sense that, did they just hear me doing Keith? And then they're like, well, it's Keith is really just Jack O'Lantern or Jack Lantern too. And, you know, do they really parse a distinction in there? Is it just Mark doing another voice? But the one thing I liked is, 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 is Kelly's distinction between Vive and Romy. And that was like really what I was shooting for the distinction between madness and just having been there and gone through shit and come out the other side of it. And I think that was a big, that was that was just like a big part of her character and why I think it's it's an important thing to go back and learn more about her because I don't I don't think it's really come out as strongly as it should like we know Isaiah is rough and tumble we know he's done stuff um, but nobody should be thinking that Romy's any less rough and tumble in fact in many regards she's tougher than he is <laughs> she's she's uh, she's seen a hell of a lot more than he's seen he's seen some bad shit there's no doubt about that the exopaths ain't anything to sneeze at but you know, they're, they're there, they're physical, they have a definable limit to what they're doing for the most part. They have a, you know, they, they have a, a pathology so that he can kind of glam onto and, and, and he's got guns that shoot through anything. So he's, he's well equipped with her. It's like the world is just on top of its head all the time. And the stuff that she sees vary from, from person to person, the whole world, not just like the exopath of the day. It's the world's different. The, the, the physics that are governing a particular dream are different. And it's just a completely, um, a, a wholly other sphere that she contends with. So I think if we were to do something like that, I think it would be best served to do it wrong. Awesome. Very good news, I'm sure. We are going to end it there. And um, we did want to update you. We're shooting for um, either... Let me check my calendar here. We're shooting for either May 19th or May 26th for the season two premiere of the sleep-wake cycle. Uh, We're leaning uh, for various reasons. It's a bit of an ongoing conversation, but for varying reasons, we're leaning a bit toward the 26th at the moment, but we'll keep you updated on that. 
So we're going to have at least um, three or four more episodes of sleep talking before we get into season two. So if you have any questions, be it about sleep-wake cycle, any of our other narratives uh, over on the Maltopia podcast, uh, any questions about who we uh, are influenced by, um, a recent movie you saw and you want, uh, you're wondering if we've seen it, you can head over to our Discord. Uh, the links are in the description. Head over to our Discord, ask your questions there. Or even better, join us over on Patreon. Uh, I just posted a recent update to the patron to the patrons there asking them for questions for the, the talking sleep uh, series. So however you want to get a hold of us, hook us up with some questions and we'll bring it to the subsequent episodes. So also, if you're you're interested in knowing what these characters look like at all i i mentioned it a couple of times but for instance mr sugar is up on our instagram i do um <clears throat> drawings yes. generally of all the monsters all the characters a lot of uh, some of the environments and environments as much but if you're interested to see what maltopia looks like from my perspective just some of the characters that i've drawn and whatnot feel free to uh stop by because quite frankly the the algorithm is not kind of to artists so i could use all the <laughs> all the traffic i could get that that and we do uh, update, we give our uh, Mark's new artwork to our patrons first. We share it with them first. And then a couple of weeks later, we put it on uh, up on Instagram. And it occurred to me, we ought to uh, throw it up on Discord first, share, you know, share it with Patreon, maybe then a week later, share it with Discord, then move it over to Instagram, something like that, get, get Discord more involved. But anyway, um, any questions, drop us a line, check out our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. You can find Kelly at, at K bear, K, K bear 71, that exciting handle on Twitter. Yeah. K B A I R at Twitter or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I'm old. That, that, that works. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much everybody for listening and we will see you in the next episode. See you later. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.